Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things it can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulta. I'm a podcast host. I'm a professor. I'm a part-time farmhand. And I'm very excited and very grateful to have a front seat at the newest innovations in biotechnology. And this week I had a uh, podcast episode and an interview ready to load, only to find out there were some glitches that happened uh, in the process. So we'll have to do that one another day. So in a last minute emergency uh, call to <laughs> the heavens, I posted on Twitter, anybody tell me an a interesting story or can we talk about something you're interested in in this area? So today's episode will feature a couple different interviews with uh, folks who have something important to add. So the first person is Cameron Siggs, and Cameron is a, an attorney in southern Florida, and Cameron um, demonstrates the importance of engaging, and many times we're hesitant to engage. We know people get a little prickly these days when you uh, comment on, on areas of contentious issues, such as genetic engineering, or antibiotics, or hormones and food. So welcome to the podcast, Cameron. Why, thank you, Dr. Folter. Um, uh, it's a pleasure to be here this morning with you. Yeah, this is really great. I'm really excited to be able to talk to you finally. We discussed this a while ago and couldn't find a good place to make it fit, and this is a good one. So if we go back to your story, tell me, um, first of all, what, what, what do you do in uh, Southern Florida? Uh, I am an attorney. Uh, I own my own firm at this moment, and I primarily practice in the areas of human resources and compliance issues. Uh, I consult. I do uh, outside counsel uh, for you know uh, many many businesses. But I, 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 a I've always been a fan of yours ever since you were gracious enough to allow me into your lab as a non-science undergrad almost twenty years ago um, to you know kind of have a look around and see what you were up to. Uh, but I, 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 I'm a trial attorney, and so I like to communicate with people. So that's basically what I do. Oh, cool. I didn't know you were in the lab uh, 20 years ago. <laughs> so the, we didn't talk about that before. So what, can you tell me more about that? Dr. Ashley Winslow was one of your undergrad students. Oh, that's you. That's me. <laughs> I'm that guy. You're that guy. <laughs> I'm that guy. <laughs> I'd tag, I would tag along with Ashley when she would come in to work on, I think she was working on the fruit flies. Well, Kat, yeah, Ashley, actually, she she did extremely well in the lab and she moved on to uh, go to uh, Cambridge. And then uh, now she is the chief science officer of some company and uh, doing really well. That's kind of cool. Yeah, she went to Cambridge and then did she had something up at Harvard. I mean, she's done remarkable things after you were her professor, by the way. Yeah. 
Well, I like to think that that we point them in the right direction and then they take it from there. So she, she was she had the right wiring and that was really great. So I've really I'm super proud of her. But it's good to know that that's you. <laughs> that's so, me. And she's gone on to do remarkable things. And all I do is sue people. Well, <laughs> well, the, the story today is kind of a cool one. The uh, story here is about uh, you were grocery shopping. Correct. And uh, at, at, at a local establishment. And, you know, we don't, you know, have necessarily have to say the, the name because you don't need to be sued by Whole Foods or anything like that. But where, where was it? Well, you just said the name, Kevin. <laughs> I, thought, I thought we were trying to avoid lawsuits here. Come on. Well, man. you know, you're an attorney. We'll, we'll sort it out later. <laughs> we'll, sort, we'll sort it out later. Anyway, I was at a Whole Foods and they made a big deal on their advertisement because you know, I've got a family, I've got two kids, and we like fresh food. And I was there on their discount Tuesday, uh, buying the cheap ground beef and the whole chicken breasts, which are on sale. It's their two ninety nine Tuesdays. Is their special, right? I mean, that's what they do. Yeah, that's pretty good. And and that's a that's a decent deal to get a bunch of meat for my family. You can it's both of those are very versatile, and you can put them in a variety of dishes. They're healthy, they're good for you, and they make you feel full, and that's what I'm there for. But the problem was the chicken was being aggressively marketed as being antibiotic-free. All chicken, all poultry in the United States sold for consumption is antibiotic-free. If you have to do, if, if you are a chicken farmer and you have to use antibiotics on a part of your flock, you can't sell those for meat. You got to do something else with them. I don't know exactly what they do with them, but it's not, this is not a thing. So it is disingenuous at best to use that sort of thing as a marketing term. And as a consumer, I'm aware of that. It's similar to Kevin, if you were to say, this is arsenic free water. Right. Well, no water that you put into a bottle to sell to somebody else to drink should have arsenic in it. Not appreciably. Like, yeah, not, yeah, not much. You know, like, yeah, obviously there's naturally occurring going to be a detectable amount, but there's a difference between, you know, adding arsenic and <laughs> just, you know, taking water, you know, and putting it in a bottle. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. Now, now with twice the arsenic. Well, let me just yeah. clarify one thing on the antibiotics is that you can sell meat, eggs and, and stuff after a withdrawal period. And so depending on the antibiotic or any drug treatment you would use on commercial poultry, you can sell it after so long. And this is important because, you know, I'm, I'm uh, you know, my, in my home life, we're egg producers and we do chicken and duck eggs and we will never not treat an animal that needs medical attention. So you get issues like bumblefoot where they step on a little thorn and they get an infection. You will treat that with antibiotics because that's the right thing to do ethically. And so uh, to, to, to declare antibiotic free means an animal that has been uh, potentially treated with antibiotics, but gone through the appropriate withdrawal period prior to production. Okay. So in the, you know, in the ethical raising of animals and that again, you know, we could talk about this for forever, but you want to ethically raise the meat and do it in a way that the animals aren't suffering. 
but you know you you like you said there's a withdrawal period and you can't sell it it's not a selling point it's not like hey this is teriyaki glazed you know what i mean like that's a selling point if you if you've got a really good teriyaki glaze and you want to sell that to me that is something that i'm interested in but telling me that it's antibiotic free chicken that's not a that that it, to me was disingenuous i was shopping and i and i told the guy i said normally i would buy this chicken but i don't like your advertising standing next to me at the meat counter happened to be two executives from this company and they asked me immediately they said why aren't you buying the chicken and i told them i said because this isn't the way to properly market this this is not appropriate i'm i'm not interested in buying your product simply because it's being marketed disingenuously and we then proceeded to have a very polite conversation where i told them my concerns i told them why i had those concerns and i told them you know i talked i, I did I, when i say i told them I, I spoke with them. And that's what I that's what I want to get across to your listeners, Kevin, is we had a conversation. I spoke with these men. I did not speak at them. And we had a conversation about my concerns. And they walked away, you know, essentially saying, we might need to rethink our advertising strategy. And do you think they re that it really resonates with them, or do you think that the uh, the trope of animals are pumped full of antibiotics and hormones is so pervasive that they ultimately will feel that they have to counter that? So is the problem whole foods, or is the problem the disinformation that comes from uh, activists and other groups that want to steer people away from conventional agriculture? I think the problem largely lies with the disinformation. It, uh, but that disinformation is something that companies can use to you know, promote their products. It's kind of a downward spiral, if you will, of this misinformation or disinformation gets introduced into the lexicon and into the discourse about food and then all of a sudden you find, you know, companies are picking up on it because it becomes this vogue thing. These popular websites, these popular influencers are spouting this misinformation, this disinformation. And now the companies realize they can make a buck off of it. And so they wind up going hand in hand. And so as effective science communicators and as responsible consumers, it's incumbent upon us to let them know a we're not going to buy it you know i i will not buy anything that has the non-gmo label on it uh I, I just won't that's that's a personal choice that me and my family have made because a variety of reasons but it's because that promotes this idea this anti-science this anti-agriculture idea that there's something foul and sinister there's danger kevin there's danger they're trying to poison you they're, they're not all they're trying to do is they're trying to feed you and your family the most economical way possible that's it 
Yeah, and that's actually been it's been shown very clearly that these kinds of what they refer to as exclusion labels do have a profound effect most on the poorest people who are shopping. And what that means is, is that there will be three gallons of milk. One of them will say milk and three dollars. Another one will say um, milk, no gluten, no GMO. And that one's eight dollars or let's say six dollars. And then there's a gallon of milk that says milk no gluten, no GMOs, no lactose, no um, uh, free range. <laughs> and and what it'll boil down to is someone will say, well, I don't know what's in that. I don't know what GMOs and gluten are. I just know they're bad for me. And so I'm not going to buy any milk because I can't, That if they're in that $3 one, I can't drink it. So we'll go get Mountain Dew for my family. And that is a, that's a very real scenario that has come up, not the free range, but clearly that things that are excessively labeled with exclusion labels suggest that there is danger in something that does not carry those uh, alleged precautions. Correct. And it goes back to my example of the arsenic-free water. Um, the, the exclusion labels, and that's a great term. I love that term. Those are... Those should not be, it should be considered to be unethical for a retailer to use those types of labels to, to try to sell a product because you're exactly right. You are taking people who may, you know, because of their circumstances, not have, you know, I got a wonderful education at the University of Florida. Okay. I'm a highly educated person. I'm a lawyer. Um, so I can spend the time to do the research to understand these things. If you are a struggling single parent, you know, out of a job due to COVID, trying to put food in your kids' bellies, and all of a sudden you're getting bombarded with false narratives on the labeling of your food that you're trying to buy, if you're looking, it, it, it's unconscionable to me. And so I hope that the conversation that I had with these two executives resonated with them because they lost a customer that day. And they, they could have sold that meat if they had labeled it properly and not made a big selling point about the fact that, um, yeah, it's like, it would be like saying, this chicken came from a chicken. Well, yes, that's what I was expecting. This chicken doesn't have antibiotics. Well, yes, that's what I was expecting. That's not a selling point. Why don't you say, hey, this came from Grandpa Joe's farm in South Carolina, and he's the best chicken farmer in the entire state. That's a selling point. You know what I mean? He's got a heritage breed of chickens, and he's got 50,000 of them in his barn, and they are the most delicious chickens you'll ever eat. Great selling point. Antibiotic free? Uh, no, not buying that. Yeah, that's um. I actually wrote something on Medium a while ago, and it's probably worth looking up uh, for for me and for others. Is uh, the sale of ghost free homes that you could actually uh, be an unscrupulous uh, home seller and say this home has been certified to be free of ghosts? Um, it's very similar because there never was one there to begin with, but there's a certain number of the population or certain part, part of the population that that really does resonate with. And to say that this home has been blessed by a shaman has been certified as ghost free implies that the other ones are haunted. <laughs> and, and what's in with some people, it would sell faster. 
So, and, and in a way, they are, uh, you know, accidentally actually driving up the price for the haunted houses because there's always going to be a certain market of people that want that. Uh, they want <laughs> to live. In, they want to live in the haunted house. <laughs> yeah, so, I, mean, I, guess, I guess present company excluded. But yeah, I guess. But um, but but all this is really interesting. Was there ever any follow up with those two uh, executives? Like, did they ever follow up afterwards, or was this just kind of a one and done? Uh, it was by and large a one and done. Except I can tell you that at my local store, they have stopped uh, the blatant advertising in that manner. Um, they still mention it, but those labels, the last time that I went to go get the deal, uh, those labels had been removed and it's no longer a focal point of their, you know, they, you know, talk about how it's grain fed and, you know, free range and that sort of thing, um, which are all valid selling points if that's the sort of thing you care about. And if you don't just want to go buy some chicken. But they have removed the labels from my particular store. They never did follow up with me. Um, I hope that they have, you know, taken it to heart. And this is my larger point, Kevin, is that by engaging people, when you have the knowledge about a scientific topic and you are engaging a person who lacks that knowledge, the most effective way to engage them and to change their mind is to do it respectfully, do it politely, do it patiently. And that's what I did with them. And I truly think that that may have reached them. I didn't get up in their face and yell at them. What I did is I, I simply engaged them in a polite conversation and I explained to them what the actual science says and they were like, oh, we hadn't thought about it that way. And so I may have changed their minds simply by being a decent person. <laughs> well, that's good. I mean, a science wedgie never changes anybody's mind. Um, but it actually does work against you in most ways, especially if other people are watching. And I think the, and this is especially on the internet, right? So it is important to always take the high road. But one of the most important things we can learn from these kinds of experiences is you don't necessarily have to change someone's mind, but you can give them a popcorn trail to changing their own mind. Give them the opportunity and maybe some tools to start to rethink things and understand that this is a marathon and not a sprint. And I think that's why I really wanted to have you on was because your experience of simply asserting yourself into a situation and initiating a conversation is something that can eventually start to crack that door open a touch. And why I would urge everybody listening to not be too nervous about engaging, but just do it politely. And and the three best words in the in the uh, in the human language in the human language in the English language um, for starting a conversation is help me understand, because when you ask somebody to help you. It's a little disarming and help you understand means you're going to listen to their point of view. And when you start from that platform, it makes it a lot easier for them to begin to listen to you back the other direction. So that's always a good way to go. So, you know, thank you for engaging on that. Did you normally do this with people in, in grocery stores? I, I attempt to be as a lay person, but someone who, you know, mama was a chemistry teacher and so I have a science background and science is 
you know, a hobby of mine. I try to engage people because I'm a very outgoing person. You know, I'm a trial lawyer, Kevin. You know, I, I, I talk to strangers all the time. Um, but I try to engage with people in situations where it's A, appropriate, and B, where I think that they might be willing to engage in the conversation. And you're exactly right. Help me understand is a great conversation starter for a science communicator, because help me understand your position allows you to take a, take a beat, sit back. What is this person thinking? And it allows you to look at your knowledge and what you know and help them understand. So that's the perfect conversation starter. That's that's an absolutely perfect conversation starter because even as a layperson who likes science, I don't have all the answers, but uh, what I can do is I can at least point them in the direction that they can find the answers on their own. And that that's where minds truly change is when they find the answer on their own. Well, Cameron Siggs, thank you very much for joining me. You know, I got a note recently that someone would like to me to talk about the Bayer decision and how decisions can happen in court um, with respect to things like glyphosate. And, and I would love it if we could follow up on that and talk about the dynamics of those kinds of cases in the near future. So what do you say? Uh, Dr. Folta, I am all in. I look forward to your call and I would be happy to discuss with you all of those dynamics and how those decisions wind up happening. Awesome. All right. Thank you very much for joining me and we'll, uh, we'll talk to you again pretty soon. Alrighty, Dr. Folta. Have a great afternoon, sir. Now on this part of the Talking Biotech podcast, we're visiting with an old friend. Uh, well, a friend who's been with us many times. I, I don't know how old she is. <laughs> it's uh, Leah McGrath. She's a registered dietitian with a major supermarket chain in the Southeast U.S. So welcome back to the podcast, Leah. Hey, Kevin. It's always great to chat with you. Isn't it fun? It's nice that we could do this. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, so tell me a little bit about your daily um adventures being a supermarket dietitian. Yeah. So, you know, I've been at this for 20 years as a dietitian and for retail. Um, so it's a fa been a fascinating journey to see products come and go and see different priorities with the retailer and with customers as well. And, you know, everything from the type of wording on packages and labels to colors of packaging to, you know, sizes of packaging, you know, every, for a while, everything was a hundred calorie pack or a little personal size, everything's from watermelons to packs of almonds. So it, it, it really kind of keeps me on my toes in many different ways. Yeah, people are weird, and, and, and the marketing to them has to be, you know, one weirder right. to stay ahead about the next interesting trend. And I, I guess it was the. It seems like such a cool job in a way. But you, so you're, you do you consult mostly with the supermarket higher ups as to ways to maybe better connect with com, uh, consumers honestly, or are you actually working one on one with consumers to connect them to? different products that are consistent with the values of the chain? Uh, 
Well, that's, you know, it, it it's a little bit of everything, Kevin, because I do, um, well, and, you know, I should probably preface everything by saying, like, pre-COVID, um, like PC, pre-COVID things were a lot different, but I do at times talk to our buyers about um, some of the issues around what I feel like are trends or what I'm starting to see as trends with customers, um, at talking to them about new products that are coming to the market, uh, customer requests. Um, I don't really do any individual counseling with our customers. Every Anything I do with an individual would be by an email or phone call. Um, but I do a lot of um, communication on a broader scale um, with a radio program, being on TV, uh, writing articles for several publications, having in-store radio spots. So it's more um, very you know, general nutrition information. Yeah, and, and plug your uh, your radio show just so sure. that I get just because I may forget to do that at the end. Yeah. So where can people hear you uh, um, otherwise? Yeah, so um, I have had a radio show that's sponsored by Ingalls, the supermarket where I work. It's called Ingalls Information Aisle, and it airs every Saturday morning at eight o'clock in the morning. And I've had that for about sixteen years. Um, yeah, so that's a fun way that I can reach um, even more of our customers. Okay. And what is this thing called radio? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Exactly. Exactly. Hey, grandma, can I borrow your radio? You know, it's a, I guess it's technically could be called a podcast. Yeah. Yeah. It it is. It is available streaming as well. So that's, that's, that's pretty cool. It's just interesting that, you know, when you say radio, you really started it back before podcasting was a thing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's funny that you say that, but and I had never really thought about it that way, but you're absolutely right. I did. Yeah, the, the, but you know, you're not typing it, you're not, you're not chiseling it into a tablet or something. Right. So you got that going. <laughs> no, that was before. That, that was the year before. Right? <laughs> but the cool part is, is people can access it via a tablet. Right. <laughs> right? Online. Um, so anyway, the, the thing we really wanted to talk to you today were some interesting trends that you saw, but you mentioned that you had read an article that I had written in uh, an online magazine called The Cook's Cook about uh, farmer's markets. And you, um, as, a, as a grocery store dietitian, have some access to farmers who do business directly with your chain and at the same time visit farmers markets. And so we wanted to talk a little bit about some of the common myths and the things we hear and and what how we as consumers can make better choices and ask better questions. So how do you think about that? Yeah, you know, I you know, as I told you Kevin when I saw your article, I thought this is genius. I mean, it actually I was so glad that you had written um that article because you know, as somebody uh, who actually participates in farmers markets and growing things and going to farmers markets, you really uh, you really see kind of both sides of what's going on with um, customers. And it's really not something I can necessarily write because everything that I write about farmers markets is going to be sort of interpreted through the lens of, well, well, you know, you're you work for a big supermarket. So, you know, if you say anything even slightly negative about a farmer's market, that's going to be interpreted as, you know, a bias. And uh, of course, I do have a bias, but um, I really appreciated uh, some of what you, a lot, well, everything that you'd written there, because we bring a lot of farmers 
into our stores for events. And a lot of the situations that you mentioned, um, some of the questions that people ask uh, farmers are the same questions I hear customers asking farmers in our stores. And I hear when I'm in the farmer's market. So I thought there were some really important points that you made. Yeah, well, let me go back and review that just a little bit, just so people have the framing of the context is um, I so it, I do wear a pretty funny hat now that you mention it. Actually, I guess you could say you have three unusual lenses. I'm a person who works in science and technology and biotechnology, but I also uh, am married to a farmer and spend a lot of time farming. It's, you know, it's a it's become my hobby. Um, you know, I work with her when I'm not uh, working my normal job. And then on top of it, I'm at farmer's markets every Saturday morning. So I'm in this weird position as a producer, as a scientist, and as a public contact for both. And it's a weird mix because you get to hear all of the things that people ask. And I wrote this article basically because the things that people shouldn't be worried about, they're worried about. Right. And the things they should be concerned about, they're not worried about. Right. So that's kind of where this is framed. Yeah. So what are some of the things that people commonly ask you or, you know, or maybe are things about farmers markets or things you hear about uh, food and farming at a local level? You know, um, uh, one of the things I see as a as a consumer myself and also I hear when we bring our farmers into the store is customers asking farmers, um, you you don't use any chemicals, do you? And um, I sometimes I just like to stop and listen to what the farmers are going to say. And or and I should, you know, and even to back up, I think I don't know if you made this point in your piece or not. But many times the people who are at farmers markets are not the farmers themselves. They may be you know, an employee of the farmer who is good at talking to people. They may be a cousin or a child. So, you know, they may not be the actual farmer. So it's always interesting to see how people respond to questions like, you don't use any chemicals, do you? And some farmers will say whatever they think the customer wants to hear. We don't use any chemicals. And then some farmers will um, say, you know, we only use at what we absolutely have to to make sure um, we can bring crops to market and um, that we're not going to end up with tomatoes that are eaten up by worms or um, dead from the blight or whatever. So I really respect farmers who try and educate the consumer and not just sort of, I don't know if, you, I mean, I don't know if pandering is a, is too strong of a word, but it, it kind of feels that way. Like pander to like agree with everything the consumer fears. Does that make sense? Oh, totally. There's a lot of that. It's, it's more placating. It's that, right. it's that, um, you know, like uh, the customer says, well, you don't use any chemicals. And, and most people will say, well, absolutely not. Because right. they understand that the com that the um, customer is saying, "Are you using uh, are you using dangerous insecticides?" Right. right? I mean, that's what the customers are really asking, right. and they're making the inference. Whereas I will, or my wife will say, "Well, of course we use chemicals. 
chemicals, you know, everyone does, whether you're organic or conventional, we're just using different kinds of chemistries that are specific for the problem that we're trying to solve. And we use some, some that are used in organic farming and some that are used in conventional. And I'll say, well, water's a chemical. We use that. Fertilizers are chemicals. We use that. Nitrogen is a chemical. You know, so I'm, I'm a little bit, you know, but we, we do, I think that's one of the best things that we do as a, as a business at the market is I take very seriously the public education opportunity. And being able to, and so funny because my, my wife will stand at the back of the booth by the register and they come to see her because she's the one who grows everything and right. she's cute and she grow you know, she's bubbly and talks about the exciting things that she does. She has the enthusiasm of the product and she knows everything she grows. I don't know that stuff. But right. what I do is I stand at front and I ask, you know, can I have any questions while they're waiting to talk to her? And I'll head off some of that stuff at the pass. Yeah. And it's really amazing the number of concerns you hear about, you know, are you using antibiotics or are you using, you know, uh, in your chickens? And they're surprised when I say yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> when we have a sick bird, we treat it. And, yeah. and they're very surprised by that. Yeah, you know, it was kind of funny last year. We have a couple, we have a pretty large farmers market here in my town. And, um, you know, the farmers market opened during the pandemic, of course, um, in a limited basis, and everybody had to wear masks. And it was a much different atmosphere. And I actually enjoyed it more because I didn't hear people asking the poor farmers or farmer representatives these questions these kind of like off the wall questions. So, cause people were just, you know, wearing a mask in and out and there wasn't all this like, you know, did, do you spray it with pesticides or, you know, is it organic or is it non GMO? And um, yeah. And when, what to me, like what I find really like kind of irritating is knowing that there are so few actual GMO crops being grown in the United States right now, what, 11, 10, 11 of them, um, to see signage all over a farmer's market that says we're non-GMO or um, these are non-GMO, um, you know, strawberries or something, just it, it gets me a little agitated. <laughs> so it's hard to hear. It's hard to listen to that. It's hard to see that. Yeah, and that was one of the things I put in the article is a question that doesn't really matter. You shouldn't go to a farmer's market and say, uh, you know, is this GMO? Because unless somebody's selling field corn or sugar beets or canola <laughs> or, or um, uh, you know, cottonseed oil or um, soybeans, you know, which are not things you find at a farmer's market generally. Now, there are some sweet corn varieties that are GM and we grow them. And we don't have to spray anything on the damn things to keep the, the bugs off the, off the earworms out. Um, you know, we're in Florida and, and the earworms are horrible unless you are rigorous with your pesticide applications in organic as well as conventional. Um, the, B, the BT gene works, a, works brilliantly and makes a nice ear of corn too. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I think um, what it kind of makes me sad um I feel a little sad when I hear these conversations taking place where um, where farmers or farmer representatives are saying things that 
they know and I know are just to placate the customer because I think in the long run that actually does more damage than anything. You know, that when, uh, I mean, I've had situations with farmers in our stores and I would hear the farmer say, like the customer asked, well, you don't use any um, pesticides on your crops, do you? And the farmer would shake her head. Then she'd say, no, ma'am, we don't use any pesticides. And my jaw must have dropped to the ground. And I went up to her afterwards and I said, why would you say that? I I know you have to be using pesticides. And she said, oh, yeah, we are. But that's what they want to hear. And I'm like, no, that's really not what we should be doing, you know? Yeah, because it creates an artificial standard. Right. Because they'll say, that, well, they don't use anything, so what are you using? Well, we use, you can say, well, we use Dipel on uh, on uh, on our crucifers. And they don't know what Dipel is. I swear it's an organophosphate for all they know. But it's really BT. It's just the same stuff that other that other organic farmers are using, right? And or other farm, but that organic farmers are using. We're a mix. We're a conventional operation, but we use many organic strategies, like for everything from you know uh, copper to uh, BT to spinosad, whatever. We use whatever works, and we rotate things because that's how you do it smart. And uh, so it is a really nuanced conversation where a lot of these folks who are telling consumers what they want to hear are doing a disservice to the market and to the customer. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, when we, I, I do programs in our stores with farmers and one of the guidelines I give people is you cannot say things about your product that are not true and mislead our customers because you know that's basically marketing right when you are talking having those conversations with people one-on-one and you're telling people things that are not true about your product or your process you're not doing them any favors and i think in the long run it just it damages the credibility of the whole profession when people um when people say things like that, and I think you also have a missed opportunity to to educate people who are so far from farming that they don't understand what it takes to bring those beautiful, you know, zucchini or squash or tomatoes to market. So, no, very true, and that's the big part of this: is how much do you trust? a local producer. And when you have something, you know, food safety and food security, food safety is so important. Yet, if you have people who at the market and our, you know, we had the same mask issue at our market. I'm actually the president of our market, oh, okay. uh, which is an interesting thing. No one knows. Um, <laughs> now they do. <laughs> well, yeah, now they do. Um, so the, that the mask issue comes up all the time. And if you have people who are not concerned about the health and safety of the public that way, they also may call into question the safety of the food items that you're producing. Right. And, I, and I try to get that through to our vendors. And so for me, it's managing vendors, it's managing consumers and doing the best we can put forward as a market to say, we want a safe and healthy product for you. And the cool thing about our market is we actually do inspections. And when a new vendor comes online, we will go to their place and make sure that if they're saying they're organic, that they are organic or that oh, if we're nice. going to their place and they're saying it's um, that they're producing cucumbers, 
you better damn well have some cucumbers there because we've had vendors at some markets that in seasons when you can't produce a cucumber, they got them and they're covered in wax. Yep. And it's those brokers who are the real scourge of farmers markets because they're getting seconds, they're getting um, stuff off the back of a truck and they're competing against the people who are actually growing it. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, one there, I remember one market, it wasn't one here in my town, but um, it was one year we had horrible, horrible rain here. Terrible. I mean, flooding everywhere. Like, you know, it was horrible for our poor farmers because we got uh, so much rain and so many of the farmers were flooded out. It was devastating for crops. And so, you know, when I went to the farmer's market, I had that in my head that this is going to be a tough early part of the season for these farmers because we've had so much rain and standing water and flooding that these farmers, I mean, there was the tomatoes all had blight. I mean, it was terrible. And we went, I went to, we were going to the market and every farmer who would normally have tomatoes was like, you know, no, no tomatoes. We mean, you know, it's been a tough, it's been a tough season for us. And there on the end, there was one guy and he had all these beautiful tomatoes. And I said, where did, where are you that you got these tomatoes? And the guy would not even look in my, look me in the eye. And um, I knew that there was no way those tomatoes were coming from Western North Carolina. I mean, there was just no way. Cause we had, we had had so, I mean, a ridiculous amount of rain, everything was flooded or blighted. It was terrible. So I think you, you mentioned that there in your article too, about, you know, how to check for kind of the honesty of some of these vendors. And that happens quite a bit. Yeah, there's a, a lot of peddlers and yeah. uh, some of the markets like uh, St. Peter or uh, Tampa St. Pete has some great markets, but in their local paper, they said 85% are not farmers. Oh, They're yeah. peddlers who buy the stuff at a discount and then resell it. Yep. And the thing that, that farmers markets are supposed to do is connect you to the producer. Yep. And that's the beauty of it, because if you're going to build trust in a local food system, you have to be able to to meet the people and understand their ethics, understand what makes them tick, and and then support the people who align with your values. And that's why people like us, because we you know we're, we 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 are uh, very active in the community. We do a lot for kids, where uh, people can come out to the farm and see the stuff and pet a pig or whatever. And so it's a, it, it, they like to support that ethic. And that's yeah. what gives us repeat customers every week. That's what brings people back to the market every week. And yeah. we wouldn't want to risk that. Well, because, it, you know, you're giving the people um, an experience as well. You know, so there's a community building experience, you know, that it can be an educational experience. You know, it, it can be many things. It just, it doesn't. You, but you have to be true to what you're doing. I remember one time up at a one of the state farmers markets in North Carolina years ago, stopping by and they had um, a sign for locally grown produce and there were avocados under the sign. <laughs> 
Now, Kevin, you know, you know, North Carolina, where do you think we're growing avocados? You know, that's right. Well, local could mean Mexico. It's, right. <laughs> it's within a, it's within 14,000 miles. No, it's, it's it, this is the problem is that all of the definitions that we have in food have become basically meaningless because everything from natural to non-GMO to local, to, yeah. it has been so abused that it takes away an honest conversation. And that was the point of my article was ask questions. And uh, some of the other really good ones, you know, are, um, you know, is, did you grow this? Right. Um, who, who do you employ? Right. You know, who are your laborers? Because yeah. sometimes, I mean, a lot of folks do use migrant labor, which is fine, but a lot of folks, um, you know, are, are, you know, are, are not paying living wages, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Other people, it's the one one or two farmers who do it themselves with their kids. Yeah. And, and I think that's good to know. Yeah, I think, um, I, I mean, I really respect, I remember one time we had a farmer who also happened to be a cooperative extension agent. So a smart guy, very tied in with his community. And a lady came up to him in the, far, in the store because he had a bunch of the produce he'd been growing. And he, she said, um, you know, tell me about your, your farm. Do you, you don't use any, you don't grow GMOs and you don't use pesticides, right? And he said, no, he said, no, ma'am, I do grow GMOs and I do use pesticides. And she looked horrified. And he said, ma'am, he was very polite. He said, ma'am, if you just give me a minute, I'm going to explain to you why. And he was very thoughtful, very polite, very thorough. She walked away with her buggy full of his produce after that. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I think it was just, you know, she recognized that he was being honest and truthful and this was his product. And he took the time to really explain to her. Now, unfortunately, you know, that it doesn't happen in the supermarket. You can't, you know, you're not often seeing the producer, the grower. Um, so you know that that's kind of the beauty of the farmers market um and also kind of the risk of the farmers market i think yeah yeah and i, I think that it, it's a really good point and i think some of the the thing that we fail to do in in the farmers market is that education i think i've tried to really make that a part of what we're doing there under my under my tenure which is a challenge during COVID. Oh, I bet. But yeah, just, but getting people there because it's entertaining, but having them go home with a little education about um, what seasonal produce is and what you can produce in Florida and what you can't. People yeah. freak out when they come and they can't buy tomatoes. It's like, well, or lettuce, because right now it's the heat of summer and yeah. you're not going to see a leaf of lettuce until October at the earliest, unless we can do it indoor hydroponically. Right. And let me tell you about that. <laughs> so, so these are a lot of uh, new ways to get people excited about food and farming. And it, it's just a, um, but it all comes back to being honest about what we're doing and being completely transparent and having a good time. And, and that's what makes it work. Well, and I also think, I think in your article, you also talked about stuff like, you know, don't handle everybody's 
produce, don't let your dog pee on the produce. (laughs) I mean, I've talked to farmers and they're like, oh my gosh, it drives us crazy. These people will pick up and squeeze things and their dogs will pee on stuff and it just drives us crazy. Yeah. I don't know that I mentioned that in the article, but I have mentioned that online that, that, you know, you'll have a a couple trays of culinary herbs down on the, you know, on a, on a a lower table, the dog will come over and take a whiz on it, you know? Yeah. And, it, and, you know, that's one one of the hazards you have or, you know, someone's little booger eater comes over and starts <laughs> eating, starts grabbing the grapes off your table. It's like, hold on a second. Um, uh, they, they don't do that since we put the mouse traps on there. <laughs> uh, you see the little two-year-old hand coming up on top and you go, ha, 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 gotcha. Um, th- th- but, th- but that is something that is, you know, that that's always going to be an issue. I'm, you know, sure. you got families coming. It's great they're there. Yeah. Um, but you do have people who... There are some people who will come right up and grab something off the table and, and sample it. And it's like, hold on a second. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Being yes. respectful is important. Yeah. Especially during COVID. It's also a question oh. of, of, of uh, public health, you know, keeping your hands out of the food. But you know, that's that's, you know, that's a whole nother story. Yes. So one of the things that we see a lot of in, in the market is, that, you know, people complaining about the seasonal availability of different produce. How, do, how does that really translate to the store? And do you see any other, any other aspects of that? Well, you know, I think, um, um, I think one of the nice parts of having a farmer's market, especially like in our area, farmer's markets open in like April, but you really don't see much produce until, um, really till May or June, just because of our growing season, unless it's like you you pointed out, grown inside. So I've heard customers coming into the farmer's markets and looking around and saying, well, there's no produce here. And it's like, well, that's because, you know, last night it was below freezing. So you can't expect that these farmers can grow in the, it, we're not in the right season yet. Um, and I get the same conversation on a bigger scale in the supermarket where people will say, well, why don't you have um, watermelon? Uh, why don't you have local watermelon in January? Or um, And I'll say, well, you know, what, like you mentioned, what's your definition of local? What, what do you, how do you define local? And if they say, well, local is North Carolina or South Carolina, I'm like, we, we can't grow watermelon in North Carolina and South Carolina in January. It's, you know, that's, and people, sometimes people are surprised that they, they don't realize that they don't think about growing seasons. They don't think about, uh, adverse weather conditions, Mm -hmm. whether that's too hot or too cold or there's flooding or it's too dry, whatever. Um, So I think that, you know, a lot of times farmers markets can help um, customers understand that a bit more just on seeing what's available. Um, unfortunately, a supermarket, you're expected to have these things all year, all year round regardless, which means that, you know, we can certainly get strawberries from Florida in January. Is that when you're, is that about right? Yeah. But we're, but we're going to have to get, but we're not going to be able to get strawberries from Florida in July, right? So because they they won't be, it's too hot. They're not going to be growing. So helping people understand like when food 
fruits, when fruits and vegetables are in season is, um, is I think a really important, important job that, that farmers markets can have and supermarkets can have as well. Now, that's an excellent point. And it's really surprising in Florida for people because people assume that the Sunshine State is going to have everything year round. And our growing season, you know, we have two big growing seasons. We, we have a lot of fruit in the ground, really the end of September through December, and then mm-hmm. a separate growing season kind of February through uh, May, maybe June. And right. July, August, September are pretty thin, except for grapes, like muscadine grapes, guavas. Um, we have palm fruit and pears, you know, right now. And then as oh, we start okay. getting into uh, September, we'll have persimmons and jujubes. And then going into, you know, and then all the veg crops start. And then you'll have citrus going into November, December, January. So it's really interesting to connect our consumers with the season and the nature of how things grow. And they're really intrigued by that. And they get to have the most fresh stuff that way, too. Yeah, I, I think it's it's really important to do that. And it's also important to remind them, because I think a lot of times the um, consumers, the customers' um, recollection of what kinds of natural events affect farmers is very limited. Like, you know, if, if you guys down in Florida are affected by a hurricane that results in massive flooding and crop damage and that makes either some crops unavailable or very expensive then up here in North Carolina people are mad at us because they're like well why don't you have any <laughs> fill in the blank and I'm, I'm yeah. like well you remember when Florida had this problem um, you know we have to get things maybe from Central America or Mexico instead because of Florida doesn't have enough to really send us. So, and a lot of times consumers, they don't, they're, they're with the news cycle and they forget about all that stuff. No, very good. And, and it, I can remember, um, you know, in my life, I'm old enough to remember commercials on TV saying, get your summer fruit, mm. you know, that they would have special commercials for things like peaches and nectarines yeah. and grapes because that stuff wasn't available year round. Oh, absolutely. And somebody asked that question. They said, you know, what have been the biggest changes in the food system in your lifetime? And that, Kevin, that was exactly what I said. I said, I remember that everything was much more seasonal. And it was like, you know, fall was was just apples. And then, you know, December, January was we would get these treasured citrus fruits up from Florida, you know, and it would, maybe it was a box from the Boy Scouts or something with was selling or something like that. And, you know, then it was local berries in the, in June or July. So now we just are so spoiled and fortunate to have access to fruits and vegetables all year long. Yeah. That's actually one of two of my favorite stories. Uh, Norman Borlaug, the great Norman Borlaug, Dr. Borlaug, uh, you know, Nobel or not Nobel Peace Prize winner in uh, 2003, I think it was, uh, you know, the man who fed a billion people as a child for Christmas, his big present was an orange. Orange, yeah. And uh, my wife, when, you know, she grew up in Ukraine and uh, for her, it was absolutely 
a treat to get a banana. Yeah. Like they, they, they would get a banana and the whole town would gather and look at it. And peel yeah. It. <laughs> yeah. I have, um, I did, I did a, a, a talks I have somewhere. And one of the points was about the, the year that the banana was the featured item at the world's fair in Chicago. And it was <laughs> sold like for, I mean, it was like 50, it was, I know, 50 or 15 cents, which is an extraordinary amount of money back then. And it was wrapped in like a special foil and you got a banana and it was like, it was amazing. You know, you got the Cracker Jack prize right there, you know? Yeah. Well, that, that's, it really does show where we are. And yeah. I think it's, it, it, you know, it's a blessing in disguise in a way that we, you know, have uh, instant access to everything at any time of year with very few restrictions and relatively attainable. Nobody's paying $10 for a carton of uh, blueberries necessarily, unless you go to Whole Foods. But we won't, you know, um, but, but <laughs> had to do it. You know, they don't like me. Um, so the, the beauty of this was that we do have this access that's really profound. And as somebody who works in fruit biology and in horticultural biology, you'll see more and more novel fruits and vegetables coming to your grocery stores in the near future. Yeah. You'll have access to stuff and new flavors and new aromas, stuff you never had before. So that's something to really look forward to. Yeah, it's exciting. I I think um, I've already seen customers are so excited by things like, you know, cotton candy grapes and um, the, the, the grapes that look like witch's fingers. And they're just... <laughs> You know, the apples that smell like, was it the apples that smell like pears or whatever it was? So, yeah, peop, I think because we're very, we're very fickle. We're very spoiled. We love the new shiny thing. And I think it's, uh, and if for me as a dietitian, if that results in people eating more fruits and vegetables, I'm all for it. And that's what it's about at the end of the day, right? Right. <laughs> well, Leah McGrath, thank you so much for joining me. Can uh, you tell people where they can hear you more on Twitter? Sure. Um, you can find me on Twitter as Leah McGrath RD. It's L-E-A-H-M-C-G-R-A-T-H-R-D. Um, you can also find me as Ingles Dietitian. That's I-N-G-L-E-S, Dietitian with two T's. Um, and I'm happy to connect with you. And what about Build Up oh. uh, Dietitians? Yeah, so Kevin's been a you've been a guest on our Build Up Dietitians. That's a global social media platform to connect dietitians and various nutrition professionals with science-based information, and that's builduprdns.com. Yeah, and I would recommend follow all of those accounts. Um, uh, wonderfully um, informative and really important for you to follow because I think Leah does for dietitians or for food and food myths and food BS, what I try to do around biotechnology. So thank you very much for joining me again. It was really fun talking to you. Yeah, you too, Kevin. Always great to hear from you. And the, as always, thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. You know the drill. Write reviews. Um, we've got lots of good ones online. I think we got all fives except for one three. So help me dilute out that... <laughs> <laughs> that low-hanging fruit, and let's uh, keep moving on. Now, I really appreciate you listening. We stand yeah. on the shoulders of giants, and uh, always remember that. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. 
The Talking Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are, but it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast, which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort, recommend guests, and support us with a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.